Hello, friends. Welcome back to Imago Gay. Today, I have a special guest, author and writer of a new fiction novel called Mount Hope by Kelly Wolf. Today, we'll be discussing the intricacies of how a town handles the violent hate crime against a gay member of their community. Her book resonates with modern truths and envisions a possibility of a better future. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So before we get started, I've been thinking about something lately. I started a new job and I work in a field that very tangibly answers the question, what happens when you die? It's funny because I spent a large portion of my life looking to answer the existential question of what happens when you die. But what literally happens when you die? Well, it's different for different people, depending on whether or not you're an organ donor, you died in a car accident, or you adhere to certain religious customs. What happens when you die is a fascinating tale. Your body might be designated a crime scene, you might choose to donate yourself to science, or you might be kept alive just long enough to let your organs save someone else. The more you know about the process of death while you live, the easier it will be for your loved ones to know your wishes when that time comes. So, friendly reminder, get a will. I think so many of us are caught up in being what others need us to be in the moment that we don't always ask, what is my will? And if my will were to be done, what would that look like? What do I want done with my body, my belongings? What are my wishes about the transference of my wealth and where do I want my final resting place to be? These are things that are hard to think about, but can be very necessary. In this way, hopefully, we can all have a happy ending. Now let's get into our discussion with Kelly Wolf on her new book, Mount Hope. Thank you, Kendra, for having me. I'm excited to be here, and I am excited to talk about my book. So it's called Mount Hope, and it's fiction, and it's my contribution to the conversation of LGBTQ plus and Christians uh, being an actual reality. They actually exist, and the idea that so many um, LGBTQ LGBTQ plus uh, folks have had to choose um, between their faith and their identity. It's such a cruel place to be, but many of us have faced it. And so my fiction book is an attempt to step off the battleground of apologetics because there are people who do that really, really well, like Matthew Vines, and allow people to experience Jesus himself. I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and that's where Westboro Baptist Church is located and have been for decades. They are the hate church group that protests funerals and have very vocal signs. I grew up with them and I began to ask myself a question, what would it take for a group like that to put down their signs and give up their very vocal marginalization of the LGBTQ plus. And I think it would be Jesus showing up himself and telling him, hey, cut it out. You've got it wrong. And so that's what this fiction book started out with. It's set in modern day Topeka, Kansas. A brutal hate crime occurs in the center of the city. Um, a young gay man is brutally murdered and the investigation ensues. And that's one branch of the investigation, and it does include Westboro Baptist Church, other churches in Topeka, and actual place markers in Topeka that people who might know the city would recognize. 
And the second plot line is the young gay man who was murdered actually has a conversation with Jesus in Mount Hope Cemetery. And they have a conversation about being gay and about existing in this world with evil. And why did I have to die? Was it because I was gay? And Jesus graciously and lovingly answers them all. And so it's an experience and it's my contribution to yeah. the conversation that the world is having right now. Well, thank you for your contribution. And I think it'd be such an interesting read because... So many people can get caught up in theory and this and that, but really providing an experience and saying, what would this look like? As you're talking, I'm thinking, what would it take for the church or certain people in the organization to wake up, you know? And I think that in some cases where, you know, your book starts off with a huge hate crime that happens, and sometimes these more blatant acts of hatred, you know, draw the attention to people to say, hey, look at this. This is awful. We still have systemic problems that need to be addressed. But then there are so many other underlying smaller ways that homophobia is taking place that are sometimes harder to call out. Do you tackle any of those details in your book about some of the, the subtleties of those types of prejudice? And also, what has been your experience? Like, What has motivated you to write a book like this? Well, I appreciate both of those questions. And you articulated the complexities of a society right now very, very well. I'll start with my own personal experience. I identify as bisexual and I have a transgender daughter. And so I have been part of the community for uh, as long as I can remember. And because I grew up in the Christian church, there was a point in time when you hit about age 12, maybe even earlier, where you begin to go, okay, if I'm supposed to love others as myself, but I'm supposed to hate myself, you begin to ask these really hard questions that you can't wrap your head around. And so the easiest thing to do when you're young is to squash down your sexuality and not deal with the God question yet, because that is a a big, scary question, especially when you're taught that asking questions about Christianity is disrespectful. And so you kind of sit in that tension for a long time. So I wrestled my way through it, but it was when my daughter really decided to transition that I had an opportunity to live the way that I had been an ally for others. I didn't see it coming. It wasn't one of those circumstances where she grew up and I, I saw it really early. She transitioned when she was 30 years old and just a beautiful, courageous. However, I will say that I had to ask all the hard questions my ego still wanted to sort of wrestle with, well, wait, did I do something wrong? Now you're talking to someone who's been an advocate and an ally for a really long time. And I'm presented with this moment where my daughter is going to, is telling me something really, really brutally truthful. And I'm still coming from a place of ego because I didn't see it coming. And so I, she had enough grace and enough love for me to let me ask those hard questions. And what I saw in her was Christ-like. I believe the grace that she afforded me when I'm stumbling all over my words and trying to understand this surprise um, was Christ-like. And it was at that moment when I began to realize there are 
beautiful LGBTQ plus Christians out there living in true holiness and have a genuine relationship with Christ from the Christian tradition. And that is all the proof you need that the two can exist in this really holy way. And so uh, the book really started like, okay, we all know Christian gay people. I know Christian non-binary and transgender. Why doesn't anybody believe us? And so that was sort of where the book started to happen. Now, I started writing it seven years ago. And in 2015, the Marriage Equality Act was passed. And I thought, oh, this they don't need my book anymore. In my little naive head, I thought that right. there was going to be this, it's all done. Know, that there was going to be uh, a utopian society where equality and freedom could be expressed in all, all forms. And, and I was wrong. <laughs> I don't want to miss this point where you're talking about your own experience as a mother to your transgender daughter. Right. You know, at this moment, were you already comfortable with your own sexuality? You talk about you being an ally during this this period of time. When you asked her, did I do something wrong? Were you still in this point where you're like, might this have salvific consequences? Or were you more just worried about your own participation? As, did I damage this human being and now they're choosing this? What were some of those things that were presenting themselves in you when that came about? Great question. So it was, I had been surrounded by gay people my entire life, but I wasn't introduced or knew transgender people at all. I just was surrounded with my gay friends and family, right? And so it, part of it was ignorance. Part of it was not fully understanding what that was about. And I was pretty comfortable in understanding sexuality. Identity was another piece that I had to educate myself about. And because I didn't see it coming, in other words, she presented male her whole life and I didn't see the potential there. And, and she had very valid reasons for being that way her whole life. But she had the grace to educate me and help me understand it, right? Because I understood sexuality, but I didn't understand identity. And so, like I said, she really had the grace to, to walk me through it. And I've seen her do it many, many times. We'd be playing bingo in a, a place or something. And somebody who's drinking approaches her and her husband and wants to ask inappropriate questions. And the mom and me wants to chase them away because I think it's disrespectful. And I'll watch her actually patiently and graciously try to educate them and help them understand. She's like, it's going to happen one person at a time. And I admired that so much from, from a Christian perspective, it taught me something. And so that her transition helped me transition my understanding of it. And she had the grace to allow me to do that. Wow, that's so awesome. And it's something that, you know, I relate to in the sense of like, by your fruits, you shall know them. I think a lot of people can hold prejudice because they hold it in a silo, right? They're not being challenged by the experience mm -hmm. of real people and meeting them face to face and saying, oh, this is not the boogeyman. These people are not monsters. They are actually some of the kindest, most generous, loving people you'll mm -hmm. ever meet. And so how can I sit here and also tell them that they're going to hell or, or tell them that they don't have salvation. Right. When a lot of times they're practicing a faith that looks holier than our own, exactly. right? So Exactly. Yeah. And I just think sometimes just the very practice of debating 
and practicing mm. apologetics already set yourself up for it's it's important for me to be right than it is to be kind right now and that it doesn't really honor um, other people's perspectives and so since there's other people doing that really well and I think it is a conversation that needs to take place as long as authority is placed in the bible I believe that and Jesus himself placed authority in the bible those conversations need to take place that's just not my battle that is not my war I I believe that because we we follow and I am a disciple of Jesus, he wants to experience relationship with us and the sexuality and identity of the person. There's a quote in my book where he says, I don't care how you decorate your locker. I care how you walk with me in the hallways. And so it's that kind of premise that is he's leaning into in this book. Now, it was no small thing for me to fictionalize Jesus and give him words and authority. And I know that I'm going to get some pushback about that, but I get to sit in the fiction world and it's not unlike the Da Vinci Code that made a fictionalized book about the Catholic church and the shack that did a fictionalized conversation between the Trinity and a hurting man. So the precedent is there, but I understand there's going to be some pushback. (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting. I I do have a a question. Did your acceptance of your daughter as a transgender woman, did that help you with your own self-acceptance? I mean, I think sometimes it's so hard to offer ourself the compassion that we might offer to somebody that we love. And I wonder if that was true for you. No, because she was 30 when she decided to transition, which means that, you know, I was 52. And so I was in a pretty comfortable place in my understanding of who I am. I am careful, though, because she's given me permission to share her story and to allow it be part of what I'm doing. But I I am hesitant to speak always for her. And so I'm always checking in with her and making sure that like, would you like to join me? Are you comfortable with me sharing this? Because I can share my story. I have full permission to do that. And she's been really generous with it. But I do think that she's the missing part of the conversation, right? I I would never want to place myself in a situation where I am speaking on behalf of transgender um, men and women. I just don't feel qualified to do that. But I was pretty confident in where I was and who I am. And it lent me the uh, safe place to have a conversation with her about it. But my full understanding, once my questions were answered, it was full embracing and what can I do to encourage you to be your true self? And so it it didn't get in the way. It helped for sure. Yeah. So I'm curious a little bit about your years as an ally and maybe some of the other moments that led to making this book that you're like, okay, you know, uh, you're saying marriage equality passed, you thought everything was great, but then you realized there was still some things that were unfinished. What were some of those factors that led up 
to you writing this book? Well, the book is dedicated to Matthew Shepard, and uh, most of your audience may know who he is. He was a young murdered man about 22 years ago in Wyoming. And so this book, a portion of the proceeds go to the Matthew Shepard Foundation. I feel really strongly about this foundation. And Jesus in the book as a character says that Matthew's death was a flag to get people's attention. He didn't orchestrate it, but that it was meant to get people's attention, like a a stone in a pond that created ripples. And it hit this 22 years later, this character's death. And he said, it's time for the world to wake up and understand that I have more to say about this. And so I was a teacher, specifically the director of project-based learning at a high school. And I worked with student high school students and we had a diversity club and it was originally called pride club but the school administration decided diversity was better and then very shortly decided it should not be part of the school's um, groups and activities and so we were basically kicked out of the school and had to have functions outside of school and outside of school property and so there was uh, a lot of fight and battle with that that we did not win this was in kansas I have family members on all sides of my family who are gay and I grew up with them. And so it felt really normal. It felt like our tribe and it, I in no way questioned its validity at all until I started watching TV and watching Topeka news and beginning to see the response and reactions to Matthew's death. And so just shocked just shocked that the world is still sitting in this antiquated place. So disappointed in people that I thought I really knew and had a heart for Christ and then see them spill ugly hate. And so, yeah, I think especially with the last administration, we saw permission to be hateful and harsh and judgmental of each other. And so it does in some way feel like, maybe we haven't made much traction at all. But then you can look in all other social circles and realize that great strides have taken place, that we now have TV shows and movies and all LGBTQ plus represented in all forms of work and life is a perfect no, but it is better. So there's still work to be done. There's always more to do. And I want to make sure that I link arms with this tribe that I love so much and allow them to speak for themselves and support them in any way I can. How has your own kind of faith been challenged, you know, maybe during the writing of this book or just for the years of your advocacy, you know, I can speak for myself. I know that I've definitely come to moments and thinking, you know, do I want to continue with my participation in this organization? And depending on your, the denomination that you're with, right, they have different bylaws. Um, but knowing that structurally, uh, bigotry is embedded in this institution. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really painful in some ways to know that I have a lot of ally pastoral friends who would probably never be able to be open allies because of the risk associated with taking on what would be called an affirming theology. Mm -hmm. They might lose their job. They would lose all the things that they went to school for and are now financially tied to. So in that sense, it it can be discouraging to see this monster swallow up 
people that you love. How have you navigated that? Because you're speaking very directly to a religious minded audience. What, what's, what's your experience been like on that journey? Uh, great question. So I'm thinking of one situation in particular where several years ago when my trans daughter was in high school, so this is, you know, 17 years ago, we attended a very conservative church and my husband was sitting next to me and I had my youngest son there and the pastor at the front of the church began to politicize his message and said, in essence, that you need to be voting for the candidate who promotes hetero marriage. And that for you to not do that is unchristian. And you're not a soldier of Christ if you don't do that. Well, tears started going down my eyes because the audacity of saying that from the pulpit to me was so offensive. Did I think that he believed it? Yes, of course. But I started crying and I, and there was a scattering of applause and I was so hurt by the applause. I looked over at my husband and he could see that I was upset. And I, I started to get up, leave, and he patted my knee, right? And so I stayed and endured the service, although I can't remember a single word that was said after that. And we get out to the car and I kind of just sort of grab my head and go, I can't believe that he said that, but I'm more horrified by the collapse. But most people didn't agree with what he said. Most people didn't clap. And in fact, in retrospect, I remember him saying, the pastor saying afterwards, more of you should have clapped. Mm. And so I know that, that we come from a place of rejection and isolation, of not being included. We don't get to dedicate our children. We don't get to say the prayer or sing on stage. You know, maybe we don't even get to join, right? So they say you're included but you're really not. You're included and they hope that you change, right? And your presence isn't being honored and you are welcomed for your gifts. And so there's this great belief that we're being tricked all the time, that even though they say, welcome, welcome, that it's, it's, a false entrance, that it's really just, we'll change you when you get in here. We're not going to honor who you are. And so to me, it was training my brain to hear the people who aren't agreeing with this, that aren't clapping, that so I know the loudest voices in the room tend to get the most attention, but sometimes the unspoken words, our support, just we don't recognize it because it's, it's not being heard. Now, I acknowledge that everybody should speak up. <laughs> That's what I want to see happen. And I've challenged my own current church, which is non-affirming and pretty much hit a wall, but they still love me. And so the challenges continue. But sometimes when you, you know, hope is defiant. And since the name of my book is Hope, Mount Hope, hope is defiant. And so sometimes it's fighting back. And then sometimes it's turning to those who are quiet and going, I need you to link arms with me. And so it's been a journey. And I've been challenged by it. I have been in a psych ward when I felt like I was stuck in a sexuality that didn't allow me to love God and be loved by God. And so, yeah, I've battled all of those things. And I'm sitting here now going, I know God now my whole life and I know who I am and he loves me who I am. And let me reintroduce you to the Jesus that is crazy about you. 
Wow. I can say amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I just, I really resonate with what you said about, you know, listening to all of the people who were not clapping. And it's one of those things where church nowadays has become such a voluntary organization, right? It's not really, at least depending on where you are geographically in the United States, it may or may not be an entrance into certain social circles, Mm -hmm. right? You can get along with your life and get a job and, and live fairly relatively happy without ever having to attend church. What are those ties that keep you invested knowing that amongst you are people who are clapping and people who aren't? How do you stay in community with people that are just kind of adamantly against something so core and visceral to who you are? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've really been challenged by that with the previous administration, for sure. I actually have had someone say to me that I attend a Second Amendment church. And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. But it reminded me that I am surrounded by people with all kinds of political and social maturity. And so I believe that Jesus has challenged me to be a person to find the middle ground and to be a peacemaker. He is not interested in me splitting churches wide open. And instead, to use grace and kindness and love and speaking his language. And, and of course, of course, there's always times when you, you flip the tables like he did, but that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to just, you know what, show everybody how much I love them and express it in a way that feels true to the Bible and to your uh, tradition and see what happens, see what miracle can happen from that. And so I acknowledge I am surrounded. I'm probably in the most conservative county in the state of Colorado and certainly the highest gun ownership. And I'm in no way correlating that they are not Christian, but just that that's the priorities of my county. And so I know that I am in the minority, but I also know that Christians are not my enemy and that I am being challenged by that all the time. We have a big, gigantic Bible college in our county. And I was touring the facility and I was so overwhelmed and intimidated by their power and wealth that I knew that they would be praying against my book, actively praying against it. And the Lord just kept telling me, they're not your enemy. They're not your enemy. Let me handle them. You just keep keep with the mission that I've given you. And so working alongside people, I know directly disagree with my own theology and even my own identity. I'm learning from my daughter. I have grace. I'm going to try and educate them. If they walk away going, wow, she was super Christ-like. And then they find out that I wrote that book (laughs) or that my daughter's transgender or that I'm bisexual, then maybe they'll think twice about judging it. So it's just one person at a time. And it's uncomfortable. I don't always speak up, but when I do, it's because I feel led to. And it's usually from a place of generosity and love and grace. Am I challenged? Yes, but that's my mission. (laughs) I, I love that. You know, you talk about what you're called to do and that everybody in the body is called to do something different. Mm -hmm. Like as you're telling me the story, my blood is boiling and I'm ready to flip over some tables. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, how dare they? 
But well, where would we be without, you know, the gentility that you're providing yeah. and the willingness to be an educator? And, and I, I think, you know, something that I've been become more aware of lately is like some days I am feeling generous and I am feeling like an educator and I do have the energy to kind of spend more time with those who have questions. And then there are some times where I just, I don't want to be an educator and I want to be among people who already know. Um, And I think that that's like a, it's a frustrating balance. Do you ever find those moments with yourself where you're just like, I want to teach you, but not today. Absolutely. (laughs) Rage is a quick response and that I have to tamper it down. The Lord has just told me to be vulnerable and authentic. And that if I make a mistake, he'll fix it. And just to allow him to speak through me and be really open to that. And I feel like that is, takes all the pressure off. Yeah. Have I messed up and said things I regret? Absolutely. Have I chased people away from debate and change? Probably, but I am human and we all are, and we are all just doing the best we can. And so when in doubt, I just lean heavily into my higher self and try and be the best version of myself that I can. And so far by my daughter's example and Jesus, I feel like I am pulling it off. And if I mess it up, he'll fix it. That's awesome. Grace with yourself. Yeah. I'm curious about some of the things in your book. I think what's so awesome about fiction is like you get to paint a new future, a vision of a different world. Or you get to reflect things about our own world and have it spoken to with the critical uh, eye. What are some things in your book that you're really wanting to to highlight as far as the possibility of what uh, we could become uh, versus who we are right now as a church? Thank you. That's a really good question. And I'm going to begin with Topeka. I'm a Topeka girl and I love Topeka. And unfortunately, this hate church has become sort of part of our PR. And we're better than that. Topeka is full of good, holy, kind, diverse people. And the one that the group that gets on the news is unfortunately the one that gets all the attention. And so it began from a place of what Topeka can be redeemed from this reputation. It doesn't represent the people. It doesn't represent the energy in this town. And so it began with Topeka can be better and Topeka should just be known better because it's being misrepresented. And then that's the big giant trap is that Jesus is being misrepresented. And so it kind of began from a place of wanting to redeem Topeka, redeem Jesus's reputation. And so, sure, I'm not sure where you want me to go with this, except that I, the name of the book is called Mount Hope because there's a cemetery literally where my family is buried that exists inside of Topeka. So that's a real place. But also Mount Hope is in reference to a Martin Luther King speech that he did, I Have a Dream, and he talked about climbing that mountain of hope. And so at the end of the book, 
there's an epilogue that talks about five years after the murder. And there is a new church called New Humanity Church. And there's a gay man on the stage as the pastor. And there's a family to the left who has a transgender daughter and a lesbian couple to the right with their daughter. And they're in amongst all the other kinds of family varieties that you could imagine. And so it represents the celebration and the erasing of lines between churches. And so new humanity thinking or the new humanity church that's, that sort of creates a hope, imaginative future for Topeka is where all the lines have disappeared. So the new humanity church at the end is the final hope that's offered in the story about where all of us can worship and be holy and exist within relationship with each other and Christ all together without lines. Is it utopian and a little far-fetched? Yes, but there are pockets of it actually already happening. So I'm dangling the hope dream in front of Topeka and going, hey, this is something we could imagine together. I love this, bringing us towards a vision and a future of a hope of what church could be reimagined as. So as we kind of end our, our conversation, one, where could people find the book? But two, any last words and thoughts that you have about this topic? I love this conversation with you, Kendra. I just think you're so generous and, and also full of grace when you do your podcast and especially inviting me here today. The book is dark. It's rated R. <laughs> I have to warn okay. you. It feels, I, I know that it's showing people light that is so lovely that they want it in their hearts and to know the source of it is, is a lovely piece of it, but it is so dark. <laughs> and so I want to sort of warn people that, and I think LGBTQ plus people realize that you can't have hope without hopelessness. And they've sure been in the pond of hopelessness for a while. And so that pendulum swing is in my story. So I just want to be fair about it, that it's quite a um, thrilling mystery also. So it's going to be out June 21st on Amazon. I have a hard copy available, a soft copy, and it'll be on Kindle. And so I'm super excited. I am proud. It took me seven years to write this. And there's a big old story behind that, but I really believe that hate and healing can be hand in hand. And this is the journey, I think, to get there. We already know the hate part. Let's move into healing now and let's experience it rather than debate it. Just one last thing mm -hmm. for those who are aspiring writers mm -hmm. listening and thinking, man, one day I want to write my book. Do you have any words of advice for them? <laughs> That's a great question too. Outline and then forget the outline, but you've got to be really, really vulnerable. You've got to type and write the stuff that is going to rip your own guts open. Just the topics that you're afraid to go to, you've got to just dive right into those questions and that storyline and that heartbreaking part of your own journey. And that's where the authenticity and the writing just comes pouring out of you if you have the courage to do it. Yeah. Everyone who starts a memoir, please make sure you're in therapy. <laughs> oh, bravo. No kidding. I've had a million years of therapy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. And I would love to have you on again to talk about maybe the writing portion of it, the seven year journey. You thank you for the graciousness of your time today. And uh, I hope 
everyone listening gets a copy. Those who are ready for the R-rated deep dive version of it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kendra. I appreciate everything that you're doing in your magazine. Thank you for the efforts that you're making. And I believe you're making a difference in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious conversations, I am so grateful for all of you who have been reaching out and sharing your own personal stories, tragedies, and triumphs within the queer community of faith. If you're enjoying this content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to follow our guest today, you can do so on Instagram at Kelly Wolf. If you'd like to reach me, you can write me at Kendra Arsenault with an X on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsor, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. And be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created by yours truly and edited and engineered this week by Ari Bates at Aberration Films and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.